This is the Book Riot Podcast. It is a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. This is episode 339, recording on Thursday, November 14th, 2019. I'm Jeff O'Neill, here with Rebecca Shinsky. We're coming to you from bookriot.com. There's a lot of energy happening there. I tried something different. Yeah, I don't know I what like that it. was. It kind of came from on high and skied down uh, <laughs> to the bottom of the hill. That's seasonally appropriate, as metaphors go. Yeah. As, do you know that... The science behind why you can ski on snow and skate on ice is not known. We don't know why you can slide more easily over ice than other materials. There's lots of theories out there, huh? Um, but we just don't actually know. I'm listening to uh, How To by Randall Monroe, which is great mm, and nerdy and sciencey mm-hmm. and fun. And that's one of the many, many nerd nuggets uh, I've nerd picked up nuggets. on that. Yeah, that is a question it's never occurred to me to ask. Like, why yeah. can we do this? Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, well. Yeah, because we can, right? That's the answer. Right. You can skate on ice because ice is skatable. It's a tautology, I suppose. Yeah, I just started, like, just ver- barely began a book similar called Who Ate the First Oyster by Cody Cassidy. Mm. That's a, like, how did this thing become a thing? Like, to whom did it first occur that we should crack these shells open and eat the thing inside or like all this other stuff that's just part of everyday life trying to trace back? Like, how did this start? Where did it begin? Right. The other one that's, again, I don't think it's from the Randall Monroe, but I always think about this when I remember how little, it feels like we know a lot about the universe and yet we don't know anything. So, you know, when you, you know, you spill liquid on a surface and it has any, if it's not just clear water, has uh, particles in it of something. And that it, when it dries, there's a ring around the edge of the spill where all the particles collect. You mm-hmm. know, like the, the, we don't know why that happens. Apparently, huh? Just why? Why, why isn't it even? Like, why isn't it evenly distributed over the whole spill? Like, why do the particles fall towards the edge of the thing? Especially since the edge dries up. Fa- it's it's that's weird. we don't know. So there you go. I would read that book. Things you don't know, things we don't understand about things in your house. You know, it's I think kind that's a of a genius episode. scam to write a whole book that lists out things that we don't have the answers to. <laughs> that's right. I can trade upon my <laughs> ignorance. I've been doing this for my life. I didn't know there was a book in it the whole time. <laughs> I like that. All right, uh, let's do our first sponsor, and we can get on to more nonsense. Today's episode is brought to you by Gallery Books. So Anna Green thought she was marrying Liam West for access to subsidized family housing while at UCLA, which is an interesting reason to marry someone. But, you know, in this economy. So anyway, she signed divorce papers when the graduation caps were tossed and she thought she was done. Eh, She wasn't. Three years later, Anna is a starving artist living paycheck to paycheck while West is a Stanford professor. Now, he is part of a conglomerate. His family owns this mega grocery store chain. He's not interested in working for them, but he is interested in those greenbacks, honey, that come in the form of a $100 million inheritance. To get it, he has to be married for five years. That's where our girl Anna comes back into play. So the two will fake a marriage, but as he gets to know her and gets to appreciate the feisty, foul mouth, paint splattered girl that she is, he'll begin to wonder if the money is worth the love of his life. Pick up The Paradise Problem by Christina Lauren to find out if it is. And thanks again to Gallery Books for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Bloom Books. 
Charming, easygoing, and rich, Xavier Castillo has the world at his fingertips. He also has no interest in taking over his family's empire, but that hasn't stopped women from throwing themselves at him. Unless, of course, the woman in question is his publicist. The cool, the intelligent, the ambitious Sloan Kensington, who is a high-powered publicist who's used to dealing with difficult clients, but none infuriate or tempt her more than a certain billionaire heir with his stupid dimples and laid-back attitude. She may be forced to work with him, but she'll never fall for him because he's a client and that's all he'll ever be, right? Right, girl, like we all know. So just in case you didn't know, author Anna Wong is the best-selling author and book talk viral author of the Twisted Love series, the King of Sin series. Miss Wong, gotta go on, on, okay? Make sure to check out King of Sloth by Anna Wong. And thanks again to Bloom Books for sponsoring this episode. Uh, seasonal nonsense. Holiday recommendation request. We've been getting some in. People are like, is it too late? It's not too late yet. What Did we decide on a deadline? Well, when, when should they get them in by? Oh, I think if you can get them in by next, so next Wednesday, which would be the 20th, that would be yeah. great because we're going to need to do some recording in advance to have a show out for the following week. Yeah, that's that's a good one. If you get in by 20th, there's a very good chance we will get to yours. And after that, less so. Boy, that was yeah. helpful. Sometimes we get generous and we do two episodes, but who knows how things are going to play out. So send them soon, people. Podcast at bookriot.com. Also, we do, um, we just, we recorded and released the episode about TV shows um, yesterday. So what, also the other thing we'd like to know at podcast at bookriot.com is which of the bonus episodes you like the best. If you have other ideas, you know, what what can we do with those in the future? Because we're cooking up some ongoing ideas for doing more than just the the Sunday night news show. Okay, recommendation request, blah, blah, blah. Also, reminder to if you, if it's all right, if we use your name, let us, I'm looking for affirmative consent on using your name. If you just sign your name without saying I can use your name, I'm going to assume we can't um, for that particular one, just so you know. I don't know that it matters. Like I, sometimes I like to include the name, but does it really matter if we get, use the person's name? I don't no, know. No, we definitely don't want to accidentally but... spoil anybody's gift giving if the person That's that they're right. shopping for also happens to listen. Yeah, when I spoil something for someone, I want to do it on purpose. Um, so I mean, otherwise you it... don't get the satisfaction. Hmm. <laughs> okay. Um, the Macmillan ebook boycott has is coming to a a, a theater near you, Rebecca. Shinsky. It is, yeah. The um, library system in Alexandria, Virginia, which is Northern Virginia, it's a DC suburb, um, has joined with many of the Virginia public libraries. In fact, the majority of Virginia public libraries in deciding to temporarily cease buying new ebooks from Macmillan due to the aforementioned and discussed extensively um, ebook embargo. Uh, so probably mm-hmm. not much more to say about that there. I will say, as a resident of Virginia, this is the first that I have heard of the majority of Virginia public libraries making this decision. So um, those libraries are either being quieter about it mm-hmm. intentionally or not, or it just hasn't made its way to me. Um, but it, this is not going anywhere. It does not seem to be going anywhere. It seems to be picking up some steam with libraries, and it's um, – I feel like I'm just curious about mm. if slash when Macmillan will decide it's not worth it. Uh, but so far, just more and more. It feels like we're going to have these updates every week for a while, probably. Related to the Macmillan boycott, and this is more on the 
the angle of what do we actually know about digital collections and circulations and budgets. Um, so in the vein of affirmative consent, I will leave the name out, but a library worker who works in a big library system in Michigan gave me some numbers mm. about some things. I thought you'd be interested to hear I'm this. I'm definitely interested. And, and she was uh, especially responding to my, I guess, dawning realization that my behavior may have consequences. I know I'm a white guy. It's, it's, <laughs> forgive me, I'm coming to it too late. Um, but for how I'm using my digital um, checkouts mm. at my mm-hmm. library and you know, realizing that it seems like the cost per, per checkout for digital goods is fairly high. And I treat them... I treat them somewhat disposably, which I hadn't really thought about before. You know, I've, because the hold lists are so long, I'm kind of retreading to set this up. The hold list for the books I'm interested in generally are long. And it's not about Macmillan. It's about people have a lot of holds out. It takes a long time. It's easy to put things on hold on your phone or on your iPad or wherever you're doing, through Overdrive especially. There's just long wait lists for most of the things I'm interested in general. So I put holds on, you know, I kind of max out my holds digitally, which I think are 20 here in Multnomah County. So I max those out. But then by the time, sometimes a bunch of them come in at the same time. Sometimes I'm not interested in them by the time I was actually come to read it. So I go, I turn around and just turn them back in without ever having mm-hmm. read them. And it got me wondering, is there a more, I don't know, sustainable way to be a digital patron? in today's day and age. The physical books I'm not as worried about because I feel like that's pretty well established. Like I go there, the books are a lot cheaper. I have it. I take it back. You know, that's pretty simple. Um, The unit economics are pretty simple. So she gave me a a popular midless and obscure title, how much it costs them and how many times it's been checked out. How do you like this? (gasps) Bless you, librarian from Michigan. Should our whole podcast be about this from now on? I mean, probably not, but I'm I'm wondering. Um, okay, so here here are the titles. The popular one, A Better Man by, is it Louise? Louisa Penny? Louise Penny, I'm guessing. Louise, um, yes. They bought six copies, uh, six digital copies at $60 per copy for 24 months with any number of checkouts. Okay? Okay. So they spent $360. And so far... And that was August 27th. So far, they've had 37 checkouts across all copies so far. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to comment on these for now. Just that's it. So that's okay. uh, $360 divided by 37 checkouts. You're looking at $9 a checkout. For, that's a popular title. Okay. That's the popular one here. Next one. All right. Number one, Chinese Restaurant by Lillian Lee. That's the mid-list. Um, acquired over several months because it was slow-glowing gl- Slow glowing, it's radioactive. <laughs> Slow growing local hit. We paid $40 per copy for 24 months, any number of checkouts. To this point, they've, they own four and have had 47 checkouts across all copies. So $160, with half of them expiring. 47 yes. checkouts. Right. So under $4, right? Am okay. I doing the math right there? Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then Obscure, Dream Sequence by Adam Folds. Acquired one copy in June for $60 for two years, any number of checkouts. It's been checked out once, and it's not not on the new book's shelf anymore, so it's unlikely it'll be discovered by chance. 60 bones! I'm not sure what to say. I I find these numbers surprising in a lot of different ways. I am feeling my brain want to make up all kinds of helpful narratives about this <laughs> that, I right. don't, that I don't know that we should do that, but this is fascinating. I wonder if mm. these are representative of other 
buzzy mid-list and obscure titles for them? No idea. Right. Is mm. Louise Penny an underperforming popular title? Is number one Chinese restaurant an overperforming? We don't know. These are just right. the data we have. Thank you so much for sending them. Also, she says that she doesn't have any hard stats across the board, but they consider it a win if we keep our cost per circulation at or under $4. Okay. So the middle one is a success there. I guess the best possible combination would be something that you acquired for a lower, a relatively yes. lower price because the publisher doesn't think it's going to be big or for whatever reason, and then turns out to be a success. So you paid less for it and you get more use out of it. Mm-hmm. Hmm. I mean, if you're solving for, if you're solving for the lowest cost per checkout, to look at the Louise Penny, they bought too many copies, I guess. Mm-hmm. Right? They bought six, thinking probably it would be checked out more quick. The, the checkout velocity would be higher. There'd be people waiting for it at the beginning. The, the thing there is, even if there are 37 checkouts across all copies so far, remember, it only came out in August. That means six per copy in the last three months, which knowing what the checkout time is in Multnomah it's 21 days that could be as fa- I mean I haven't I haven't gamed this out but that could be as many checkouts as you might expect that quickly just because the people hold on to them right mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. like it's not we don't know it may not say anything about demand it's more about one in one out the length and the length of time someone holds it for because here's another situation I think I talked about when I brought up this topic if I don't remember to turn something back in right away I won't go act I won't proactively turn it in and it'll turn itself back in just on the 21st day. In my is it is your it's probably the same all over the place. Mm-hmm. Like if I finish the book and I put it down, I probably should immediately go back and turn it in. That's one thing I'm trying to do. Is like as soon as I'm done, the first thing I do is not go to the bathroom or go get my copy, go turn in my ebook loan so someone can check it out, especially for these ones like Louise Penny, any number of checkouts. So if they get past unlike some of the McMillan stuff we've seen which you get what 52 checkouts in 24 months or something like that, their cost per checkout will largely depend on what the number of checkouts is after, you know, you know, it only, it gets real cheap real fast if a whole bunch of people check them out, right? Um, so popular PRH books are generally $55 for 24 months for any number of checkouts. Indie presses, though, are usually under $30 per copy, and those aren't metered. So you Hmm. have it, you get to have it forever. Presumably they know, and Indie Press knows, they're going to be more like this dream sequence, which is the the effective cost per checkout probably relatively high on average, right? Because people don't know about Indie Presses. Right. So they they don't need to meter it because they know they're not going to hit the cap because there is no expectation of those. If they luck into great word of mouth, because most indie presses are relying on word of mouth and not big promotional budgets, then they've hit the jackpot of they sold a title mm-hmm. that will have a relatively higher cost per checkout usually, but they're getting a ton of exposure to that title because it got some juice behind it. And it then yeah. brings the cost per checkout down for the libraries. Really interesting stuff. Thank you, Anonymous a- Librarian. Yeah. A couple more tips from Anonymous Librarian. Again, I'm sorry if, if this is awkward for you, Anonymous Librarian, but I, I didn't want to use it without your name without saying so. You can let me know, and we'll give you proper um, public kudos uh, in the future. A couple of suggestions 
for people like me, and and I'll throw you in here. You you might want to be a good mm-hmm. person. I don't know um, about being a good digital patron. Um, let's see. The most helpful thing you can do is return digital books early if you're done or you know you'll get them. Like I just said, that's that's an easy one to do. If you have a lot of digital holds that you never look at once they're automatically checked out, you can turn off automatic checkouts in Libby. So you'll get a notification that thing is ready, but if you don't go pick it up, then I think there's like you have a three there's some window you have to actually check out the book once it's on hold. But if you don't go ahead and check it out, it will turn put it back into circulation. So you might if you're worried about throwing fish back into the ocean, one thing is just to not let the fish jump into the boat of their own accord. You can do that. Um, you'll still get notified it's available and have a couple days to check it out. I think that's what I just said. However, this is only really helpful for metered access books that will need to repurchase due to demand or if there are other people waiting. In my experience of late, everything I'm looking for on Overdrive has a hold. I, I don't know the last time I found something. I was I searched for something in Over God Libby, which is run by Overdrive, which is owned mm-hmm. by Rakuten. Anyway, it's it's um, holding companies all the way down. Uh, I don't know the last time I actively searched for a book. It's like it's available now. It just doesn't happen for me anymore. Now I don't know what says about my reading, other things like that. But that's not a use case I'm falling into. I thought this was all extremely fascinating, and I need some time to chew on. If I mean. Does this add anything to my understanding, interpretation, position on Macmillan embargoes? I think the data set is too small. Um, but I, you know, on a personal level, the cost to the library for the ease of checkouts for my digital usage is way higher than I thought. It's just, mm. it's just way higher than I thought. Even a win at $4 um, is just way, way higher than I was expecting. I don't know why. Um, maybe the same reason people think ebooks need to be cheap. I mean, they should be cheaper than paperbacks, but that's a whole nother rant, which I don't have time for right now. <laughs> I don't, we don't want to do this today. No, we don't want to do that today. Let's, let's keep okay. it, let's keep it moving. Um, let's see, let's do another sponsor and then we, we can tell Amazon how wrong it is about stuff. <laughs> Does that sound fair? Yeah, that sounds good. All right. Today's episode is brought to you by Underlined. Haven't read a Natasha Preston thriller yet? We dare you to try. She's known for her line of chilling young adult suspense novels like The Cellar and The Fear. The New York Times and USA Today bestselling author excels at putting fear into the hearts of her readers. So her newest book titled The Dare is about five friends whose senior prank goes very, very wrong. This is a perfect graduation season read for thriller fans who can handle a good scare. The Dare is now available wherever books are sold. You can learn more about it at getunderlined.com. So again, this young adult thriller is about five friends with a prank that goes wrong. There are dark secrets, a twisty plot, and creepy I know what you did last summer vibes. So if you, you know, it's graduation season, you want to revel in that, but like make it scary. You know what I mean? Pick up The Dare by Natasha Preston. And thanks again to Underline for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Penguin Young Readers. So this book I'm about to tell you about is giving five worlds meets spirited away realness. It's about a girl fighting her way back home after getting trapped in the spirit world. It follows Anzu, who's moved to a new town during Oban, a time for families to remember and celebrate their ancestors. And ever since her Abachan died, 
Oban has lost its magic. She doesn't feel much like celebrating anymore. So while avoiding holiday festivities, Anzu spots a stray dog down the street, a dog that seems to be staring right at her. So when she chases it, she slips and falls down a bridge, losing consciousness. And when she awakes, she's in the Shinto underworld known as Yomi. The stray dog, she finds out, is actually the gatekeeper of Yomi, and he warns her to return to the human realm before it's too late. Like I said, Miyazaki realness, um, I'm super excited for this. So make sure to pick up Anzu in the Realm of Darkness by Mai K. Nguyen. And thanks again to Penguin Young Readers for sponsoring this episode. So you, a little unexpectedly for you, you came in hot on this one <laughs> when you dropped it into the the work slack the other day. I thought over time you had developed a certain equanimity about end of year best book list where it's just you know thing and people do it and sometimes they're wrong but for whatever reason you came out with your Annie Oakley came out firing with their six shooters blazing on this sometimes Annie just needs to make an appearance I think I have accepted well equanimity is a generous way to describe it and I appreciate that there's a certain like mm, stony-eyed acceptance of the way publishing tends to work I guess Mm -hmm. Uh, just Predictable disappointments is what I'm used to. (laughs) I I am fired up that The Testaments keeps appearing as the number one Mm. best book of the year. It's just not. It's not a bad book, but it's just fundamentally... Wait, are these ranked order? Oh, there it is, right at the top. I'm looking yeah. at the banner. I'm, yes. I'm sorry. I was looking at just the top 20. I was looking at the carousel. I was like, wait a minute. But the, like, the big just, banner, the number one pick for the... Yeah. It's okay, just, now I get it. I get it. Right? I'm sorry, I misunderstood. Thank you. Would you... I'll share my one of my pistols with you, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Throw me one and we can shoot out of this together. Like, it's just... It's just not. And I don't think this is a service to readers. You don't... Like, the Testaments is... It's fine as a standalone, but there's kind of no point in reading it as a standalone book. It's a com- it does a completely different thing than what The Handmaid's Tale did. It's not going to satisfy the itch that The Handmaid's Tale leaves you for a like mm-hmm. feminist, like intentionally political book. It's just not the best book of the year under any measure, and I don't know what kind of like intellectual. I don't want to, well, like intellectual laziness shenanigans are going on with justifying making this the number one pick, unless there's some definition of best that doesn't have to do with, is this a good book? And more like, is this a book people are willing to spend money on? Let's call it the best book because it's buzzy. Like, and it's just a, like, it's a travesty that then it's next to the Nickel Boys by Colson Whitehead, which is certainly one of the best books of the year. And mm. like Margaret Atwood gets bumped ahead of that. It's just not okay with me. I am not I, okay I do need, with this. Oh, go ahead. <laughs> go ahead. No, I, I, I'm I done. would <laughs> like. I would like to listen to the inverse episode that we did about testaments. Two people who are like thinking about the testaments, and they came to the conclusion that it is one of the best books of the year. Because I, I haven't seen the case for it. Honestly, I hear I hear I people saying either. it's a page turner. I haven't seen the. I may disagree with it. I'm not even looking to argue, but I would like the full throated. Um, analysis, interpretation, reaction that leads someone to pick it like this because I, I genuinely don't understand it. Like with the where the crawdad sing, I sort of understand why it's popular. I think it's not a very 
good book and I would wish other people would read other things versus it, but I kind of get it. Whereas the critical response to the, the Testaments where it's appearing on these lists, I, I genuinely don't understand um, and would like to understand, even, even, even just to sharpen my own blade uh, against it. Um, yeah, that's, that's, I would say that's frustrating. I will say, you know what turns out, what comes out looking pretty good on this list is us, because in our fall preview, <laughs> a lot of the books we picked are here. Like, so not that we, th- mm-hmm. we didn't say they were going to be the best books of the year, but we said they were the books people would be talking about. So the ones that we put on that, we put the Testaments on there. Um, we put the Rushdie on there. Mm-hmm. We put the Starless Sea on there. Um, we put, uh, Jackie Woodson's Red at the Bone on there. We put um, mm-hmm. The Water Dancer on there. So half the books we put on yes. there ended up on this best books of 2019. And that, and that doesn't, and we weren't even looking at things that came out earlier in the year. If we had done the whole year, I, we would have the Nickel Boys on here. Mm-hmm. I think we probably would have had City of Girls by Elizabeth Gilbert oh, on yes. here. Um, and Patchett. I think that's the one we missed, the Patchett, yeah, the Dutch the, House. This Anne Patchett sort of, this one flew under my radar. Yeah. Did we talk about someone wrote us about Tom Hanks narrating that? Did did I do this follow up on the show? Oh no, I think I saw on our contributor Slack someone talking oh, about it. Oh, that's what it was. Yeah, but that's all I know is that Tom Hanks is narrating it. Yeah. Um. So apparently, Alice Hoffman met Tom Hanks, and they wrote each other back and forth like mutual admiration society. And when it came time to look for a narrator for the Dutch House. She suggested to her publisher that, you know, Hanks might do it. And they're like, mm. okay. And it's sort of a friendly favor. Again, this is now legally hearsay, I think. But <laughs> that makes that that's the kind of story that makes sense to me how, yes. how something like yeah. this. Yeah. Oh, right. Happen. Yes. Because we did, we were puzzling out loud on the show, I remember now, about like, how yeah. did they get Tom Hanks to narrate Ann Patchett's audiobook and how much does that cost? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. I, I remember that now. Um, other, I think, just interesting things on the list. I was glad to see City of Girls. I was late to that one. I didn't read it until mm. September, but really enjoyed it. Maybe You Should Talk to Someone by Lori Gottlieb is terrific. We should all read it and think about therapy. Mm-hmm. Um, on Earth, We're Briefly Gorgeous was going to make this list, and I'm glad to see it there. Yeah, interesting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I Will Never See the World Again. This one's been on my radar, and I don't know, but it hasn't. I haven't uh, got missile lock on it. I guess I'm using mm. Top Gun metaphors now. I will never see the world again. The memoir of an imprisoned writer, which rings many of my yeah. uh, pre-existing bells. Um, I think we also, if we had to do over again, we'd include the Ninth House by Lee Bardugo on our fall mm-hmm. 2019 preview. We just, you and I are not YA people, and so I think we don't know how big of a deal Bardugo was. And I had heard that the book is good. The Ninth House. So I, yes, I'm gonna, I've heard that that's good I'm going to well. read that together with The Starless Sea for some adult fantasy in my holiday reading for sure. I th- the other thing, the secondary indicator I always find interesting here is the number of reviews mm-hmm. that for these things as a proxy for relative popularity. It looks like The Testaments does have the most number of reviews. Oh, I'm sorry. No, 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 no. We did this before. The Silent Patient on the Goodreads, 4,000 mm-hmm. reviews, which is almost triple um, yeah. The, the Atwood, and then and then you get the Nickel Boys, which continues to sell. It's been in the top ten of hardcover fiction basically since it's come out. So I think that's really interesting for a number of reasons. One is the book is not easy. It is short though, so I'm not sure if that has anything to do with it. But Whitehead is a bankable literary writer. Mm-hmm. Is a post Underground Railroad phenomenon, right? It, before Underground Railroad, you wouldn't expect. The, a book that came out many months ago from Whitehead to be in the top 20 on hardcover fiction 
into the fall. Would you? Would you have expected that before Underground Railroad? We like them, but as a bankable product. I don't think I think this is a new thing, which I'm very excited about. That's all yes, me too. I think we have Colson Whitehead has broken out, and we're yeah. watching it. Yeah, right. Um, let's see the Rushdie seventy eight reviews. Tough, tough look mm-hmm. for for uh, um, the battle for Uber. I'm definitely looking forward to that. The Starless Sea. Now again, it's only been out ten days, only forty nine reviews. Uh, I don't know what the I don't know what the yield curve of reviews tends to look at, but that was interesting. Um, oh, you know what? I meant to pull Publishers Weekly to look at first week sales for Starless Sea. Maybe for next week, we'll take a look mm. at that. Um, then after that, maybe you should talk to someone. 983 reviews. So that, that book is selling. It is. It's, and it's so good. And like, I think that's a good word of mouth pick yeah. that's happening as well. I'm starting to, I'm continuing to see, the book came out earlier in the year and I'm continuing to see Lori Gottlieb like all over media doing a variety of things. And The Water Dancer um, by Taniasi mm-hmm. Coates, uh, 425 reviews. I did notice it got a significant bump last week. From I, I, I'm attributing it to the Oprah, Oprah. Oprah episode going live. So it was like went from like I think 8,000 copies sold to like 19,000 copies. Mm. So it's, it's not a huge, you know, it didn't bump it to the top, but it effectively doubled the sales. Yeah, that's So not I nothing. think I had wondered, I think I, I thought I'd wondered if the Oprah bump had been baked into the announcement and the, the actual episode airing wasn't going to matter. It looks like maybe it did. Looks mm. like maybe it did. We need to, uh, now that we're in our Apple Plus experimental mm. phase, we need to go watch that Oprah Tanahasi interview and I know. I need answering. to look at it. If, if, you if any of you have watched it already, let us know what you thought. Because I do want to watch it, but I'm not, um, I'm not all saddled up to, to go watch it. Um, any, do you want to look at any categories, or is this enough? This are, is are enough. We, I just needed to make my sounds about the travesty of naming the Testaments the best book of the year. <sighs> yeah, I'm, I'm looking at their other top 20. Are there any... I guess the Nickel Boys, again, I like Whitehead. I like that book. I... <laughs> finished it recently so i i'm recency biased and also mm-hmm. you know i'm pro yeah. colson and like typically with a list like this i find myself in the place of like that there are several books in the course of a year that you could reasonably call the best book of the year and i i like the approach of just best books of the year and not necessarily trying to put them in rank order but if you're going to name a number one it needs to be defensible that's a frustrating. It's a frustrating book, and a and the the frustration is com- compounded by where people are putting it. Mm-hmm. Uh, speaking of book of the year lists with um, Margaret Atwood's The Testaments on it, <laughs> <sighs> Barnes and Noble launches a book of the year award. Talk about striking while the iron is barely burning. Um, how? Why is it taking so long for Barnes and Noble to do this? Well, why were they doing this of, in 1992? Well, I'm serious. A, why were we great, doing this 30 this years ago? This is a great question. We're doing it now because it's an initiative from the new CEO, James Daunt, at Barnes yeah. & Noble. And apparently um, Waterstones has had success with a similar prize that they've run since uh, 2012 and a children's prize that's been running for more than 15 years. So... Donned brought it in, but you're right. Like Barnes and Noble does other things to spotlight books that deserve attention. They have the Barnes and Noble um, new voices and like the Barnes and Noble picks. Um, So it's not like a whole new territory, but this book of the year 
uh, thing is new, and it's booksellers voting for the title that they are most proud to be selling, um, which is interesting. The range here of contenders is also interesting. We have Atwood. We have the Nickel Boys. Greta Thunberg's book is here, The Silent Patient, mm-hmm. um, Stephen Fry's Mythos. The Food of Sichuan and Elizabeth Strout's Olive A cookbook, which you never see. That's fascinating. Yeah. You never see a cookbook. And then there's The Boy, the Mole, the Fox, and the Horse by Charlie Maxey, which I don't know, real real variety on this list. You do Mm -hmm. never see a cookbook. That's true on lists like these. Um, Or they're always separated into their own category, which we talked about last week, that Mm -hmm. cookbooks aren't considered to just be books by um, most readers and bookish entities Uh, yeah like this is a thing um it'll be interesting to see which one wins if it's the testaments i'll just go annie oakley again i guess (laughs) yeah um i don't usually have to do this with modern book words i'm a little concerned about the diversity here yeah that's true. And I was thinking this is a case where like independent bookstores definitely have beat Barnes & Noble on how they think about the titles that they spotlight, the indie next picks and the ways that mm. um oh there's another like there's another thing that indies do through the ABA that highlights new voices and debut writers in particular. Um but that really does draw directly from indie booksellers what they're enjoying hand selling what they're into and sort of creating a groundswell of buzz. And that has potential to do really interesting things for a book's sales um, and to help Mm -hmm. break it out in some ways. But most of these are things that were already doing plenty buzz on their own, or many of them uh, don't necessarily need the help of Barnes and Noble booksellers Mm -hmm. to continue selling. I feel very much like this is a thing that is happening in the world. Here you go. You know, like there's just not a lot to say about it. Well, and not to tinfoil hat, um, especially to the queen of the tinfoil hat, but <laughs> historically, Barnes & Noble didn't mind letting people pay for placements on book mm. Barnes & Noble Discover, and I wonder if the reason they didn't do a Book of the Year award is they weren't no money in it, for, you know, Maybe. in sort of the co-op uh, pay-for-placement yeah, situation. Yeah, and it's interesting. The most interesting part of this piece on Publishers Weekly is James Dot talking about where this comes from and him saying that during his time as a bookseller and a bookstore owner, the best recommendations that he's gotten have come from other booksellers. And then the next quote is, this very often is for books that have eluded bestseller rankings. We've enjoyed very much the eclectic eccentricity of many of the titles proposed by booksellers and believe mm. the shortlist reflects the serendipity of discovery that is a hallmark of a visit to one of our bookstores, which maybe because some of these are titles you would discover serendipitously. Um, Mm. But a lot of them had big publisher marketing budgets as well. Doubleday, Penguin, Random House, Celadon, Harper, Mm -hmm. (laughs) Doubleday. Yeah. I mean, sometimes you got to look at the imprint to to wonder if it's... Yeah, I don't know. Like, I can tell you this. If they had had a Barnes & Noble Book of the Year award from 92 to like 2004, I probably would have read every single one. Yeah, you know what I... Yeah, and I think this is probably really it's a holiday marketing absolutely tool more than anything else. This is for people wandering into Barnes and Noble stores during the holiday season or hitting bn.com trying to buy books for their mother-in-law and they're like what do I pick? You're going to just take mm-hmm. something off of here here are the best books of the year and then you also get to say like you're welcome. It was one of the best books of the year according to booksellers. Like that's that's what this is. Like I've been trying to parse out Who are they trying to serve with this? And I think it's holiday shoppers. 
Yeah. Um, while we're on Barnes and Noble, a I feel like I'm having some sort of deja vu all over again with this story about <laughs> a Barnes and Noble reformatted opening in Virginia Beach. That's the first in. Am I wrong that this looks exactly like the reformatted Barnes and Nobles we've talked about before? It, Tell me I'm wrong about this. Or no, am you're I wrong? right. Or, or, it looks similar because okay. we had the whole discussion about how it feels like walking around Powell's and like this. Yes. These. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But this is. It's getting it's news again that the redesigned Barnes and Nobles are happening, and I guess probably because most of the Barnes and Nobles have not yet been redesigned. Uh, so maybe the reporting's bad or misunderstood because this is the first. Uh, the book's chain reopened a new version of itself in the town center section of Virginia Beach. Um, the Virginia Beach location is the first Barnes and Noble to get a new look from with input from Don. So I guess hmm. maybe it's the same format, but this is the first one where, I don't know, he put a little chili pepper on top of the pasta <laughs> that was already, I, I don't, like how different is it, how different would have this store been without Don coming in and saying something about it? It's unclear to me. Um, Cause this doesn't mention at all that there've been other smaller format book centric stores opening yeah. of late, but at the very least, they're continuing it. I guess maybe they that's are. the story, is they're still going to uh, continue to do this. Um. This episode is sponsored by The One That Got Away With Murder by Trish Lundy. Robbie and Trevor Cressmont have enough wealth to ensure they'll never be found guilty of any wrongdoing, even if everyone believes they're behind the deaths of their ex-girlfriends. Let us all take a collective angry sigh at that. Lauren O'Brien, the new girl at school, has a dark past of her own, and she's desperate for a fresh start. Except when she starts a relationship with Robbie, her chance is put in jeopardy. During what's meant to be their last weekend together, Lauren stumbles across evidence that might just implicate Robbie. And after a third death rocks the town, she must decide whether to end things with Robbie or risk becoming another cautionary tale. This is an edge-of-your-seat YA thriller that's perfect for fans of Karen McManus and Holly Jackson. Make sure you pick that up now wherever books are sold. And thank you once again to The One That Got Away With Murder by Trish Lundy for sponsoring today's show. Today's episode is brought to you by W.W. Norton and Company Incorporated. So Negative Space by Jillian Linden follows a week in the life of an English teacher at a New York private school. At home, her children ask constant questions about mortality and her husband offers occasional counsel between Zoom calls. At school, something happens. She accidentally witnesses an ambiguous, possibly inappropriate interaction between a teacher and a student. But how can she be sure of what she saw? Negative Space is a portrait of a woman caught between the pressures of what's normal and what isn't, and examines what we owe the people who depend on us in a fractured and indifferent world. It's a debut novel and a short novel. It's perfect if you want something quick and easy to carry around, but it's also thought-provoking. It takes place during the pandemic, but it's not pandemic-focused, and it really just looks at everyday anxieties and low-threat situations that have high consequences. So make sure to check out Negative Space by Jillian Linden. And thanks again to W.W. Norton and Company Incorporated for sponsoring this episode. All right, let's do another sponsor and come back with the the rest of the news. Mm -hmm. Angry parents protest LBGTQ books in Loudoun County, Virginia classroom libraries. (sighs) Um... 
The diverse classroom libraries installed in elementary and high schools across Northern Virginia school... Boy, Northern Virginia. Big look Mm -hmm. for Northern Virginia this week on the show. (laughs) Um, So there was... was, It looks like a a focus, um, additional, you know, meaningful enlargements of collections around LBGTQ plus titles. And to some parents, the books amounted to sexual propaganda. Um, I'm not going to read their comments. It's not worth yeah, doing. It's not worth um, doing. The, what's the story here, Rebecca, besides me getting angry about this? Yeah, you know, I think there's, there is an upside here. And the upside is that Loudoun County set out to create these diverse classroom libraries that were installed in elementary and in high schools across the school district. And they were intended to expose students to stories about young people of different cultures, races, and religions. So that's the good headline is that this is a school district intentionally putting books about people of diverse identities on the shelves in classrooms. Um, Mm. Some of those books are about LGBTQ characters. As you said, people are complaining about it. Um, One of the quotes that I did really notice was a parent who said, it is 100% a political agenda. And you know what? You're right. Mm -hmm. It is a political agenda. The school district is making a political point. Books are political and that they chose to stock these classrooms with books that are intended to show students a variety of experiences and presumably to reflect back to them their own identities and experiences for kids who are of different races, who come from different religions, who might have been othered or ostracized in some way, kids who might be having feelings about their gender or their sexual identity. That's, that is a choice. The, I think where we're falling on here is that like this shouldn't have to be political, that it should not be a political question of do people's identities are people's identities valid and do they deserve respect and do people deserve to see and read stories about Mm -hmm. their experiences? And is it important for other people to be exposed to those stories? The obvious answer from where we're sitting is yes. But the notion that this is a political agenda and that it happens to be political means it should be removed from classrooms. Um, which is also is it, political. There, there right, is no is, right, apolitical exactly. choice is a, here. Right, and that, that's, this is a ridiculous thing for a person who's arguing from, an, from their own political agenda um, right. to have these books removed. Um, it's, yeah, the quotes are the same kinds of quotes that you get in every piece where someone is mad that a book about a gay kid is on a shelf in a classroom, um, but that this was a district-wide effort to create these classroom libraries. And you can get, like, many of the titles are mentioned in the piece in the Washington Post. So if you're looking for stories for both mm-hmm. young readers and, like, all the way up through um, high school students about um, about specifically LGBTQ experiences and identities. You can get some resources here. And it goes on to talk about how books about LGBTQ issues are becoming increasingly the targets of challenges and bans across the country, which is something that we've been following here on the show. So here, this is another thing to know that has occurred. Loudoun County is um, it's a big place in Virginia. It's a big school district. Um, if you're listening to this show and you live up there, uh, you have some folks maybe to think about contacting. But I think one of the top lines I'm taking from this is good job to the Loudoun County School District yes. for, for starting this in the first place. And no and this, no change looks like it came out of this. I mean, basically, mm-hmm. this is a report about a six-hour-long 
forum on the, these books, and there were people on both sides. Good job to the parents, and there's several quoted here who came out to defend, um, share their own experiences, speak in favor of inclusion. Not easy to do. That's very not easy to do. And it looks like they made a full-throated defense of something which, sadly, you have to defend, I guess. Um, but they're not. Ta- it doesn't look like they're taking them off the shelves. Uh, it doesn't look like they're making any change. Some people got to be mad and make one-sided burden of proof arguments, and now they get to be quiet, and I hope their efforts fail miserably. Yes, may your efforts um, fail. It is, it is interesting, too. There's one quote that I thought was indicative of a habit of mine that I'm sure other people have noticed and talked about extensively that just stuck out for me here. One of the a teacher in the district said he called for the removal of any books that could potentially confuse a child of who they are biologically. <laughs> as 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 you know, our discourse around gender identity has accelerated and become more and more part of mainstream political life. It's interesting that the, the rhetorical move is to place the location of the disruption of heteronormativity as the book's doing, that right. this isn't something that happens in the world and is a real expression of how people are and who they feel and who they think and feel they, they're to be, but rather the result of some sort of contamination by a third party. And I think that's the idea you have to have if you think getting books off the shelves does anything. And also, you, you also have to think that to continue railing against them, because if it's something that people authentically, quote unquote, are, and it isn't the result of some damage or influence or so, you know unwanted intrusion upon their like real authentic selves you don't have a case you yeah. don't have a case and well and it's also based only in fear and not in evidence because now we've been having a a decades long social discourse about sexuality and about gender identity. And in the last couple of years, that has really accelerated. But I have yet to read a single coming out story that's like, I always thought I was a boy until I read this book. And then I and then the book confused me. (laughs) You know, Mm -hmm. people talk about having felt confused, and then a book helping them see themselves and understand their identities. And books do have that power. Um, And I think that is the thing that perhaps some of these folks are afraid of. But like, we've yet to see like, you know, a gay celebrity talking about how, you know, they grew up straight, and they always wanted to be straight, but a book really talked them into being gay. Like, yeah, then they they read a book about gay penguins, like, you know what, I think, (laughs) you know what, that did it. Right. Like this thing that the people who oppose these books are afraid is going to happen or they say they're afraid is going to happen does not happen. And we have decades Mm -hmm. now of like a lack of these stories. But I guess a lack of evidence doesn't prove that there's a lack of it to be found somewhere. And they're just waiting for the one time it'll happen. Um, Yeah. This is absurd in the extreme. May your efforts fail. Yeah. These these books don't have sort of originating power, but what they have is liberating power. And I think that's the, that's what mm-hmm. they're afraid of, is that they either implicitly or explicitly know that books that represent different kinds of experiences, different kinds of desires, and different kinds of experiences affirm those things and let people be happier being those things. And the truth is they don't want people to be those things. It's right. as simple as that. Everything yeah, else is. is garbage. Yes. I guess that's our show. Everything else is garbage besides this podcast. <laughs> And books about kids in all their forms. Those are the only two things that are clean. Send us holiday recommendations at <laughs> podcast at bookriot.com. 
Um, I think that's it. We'll be back. No bonus episode. We don't even no. have one to tease. What are we going to do? Did you ever see the movie version of Where'd You Go, Bernadette, that came out? It's coming out on video next I week. I did not, but I do love Kate Blanchett, so I'm willing to give it a shot. And you like the book as much as I did. I think we've talked mm-hmm. about this yeah, before. Yeah, we both really one of, the, it. Mm-hmm. one of the great unreadalikable things. Always in yes. search of another Where'd You Go, Bernadette. That's um, true. It is unlike most other things. Hmm. Yeah. So maybe that would be a good um, book nerd movie club over the... Uh, over the for the next one of those we do. I also I'm very very distressed that we don't have a a venue at this moment to talk about the movie version of Cats being released into <laughs> theaters into our into American movie theaters. <laughs> We're just going to coming soon. Create a venue. We're just going to do it. Yeah, um, and then also the adaptation of Little Women coming out mm-hmm. on, on the same day. Two same day. Two major. <laughs> Two major literary adaptations, and we got nowhere to go with it. We just have to sit at home and think about cats and um, writing books when people don't want you to write them. I'm very sad about that. I can if hear you're that. excited for cats, let me know. Podcast at bookriot.com. I'm, I have to say, if we use our staff and contributor core as a focus group, I would say cats is not going to perform well at the American box office. That's, that's my sense. Oh, I yeah, I don't know. I probably am not going to talk myself into going to pay theater money to see it, but I'm definitely going to spend some time watching it at some point. Mm, yeah, I don't tell. So if you where all my Deuter, old Deuteronomy stands at, hit me up <laughs> podcast at bookriot.com. Have a good Rebecca. One. We'll talk to you later. <laughs> <laughs>